Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. When we talk about unprofitable servants, do we usually think is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, terrible, bad. The word unprofitable actually, if we look it up in the concordance, means useless or good for nothing. nothing. Unprofitable servant. Now if I were to ask you a question, how many would consider themselves an unprofitable servant. I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but uh, do you ever think of yourself as an unprofitable servant? Or do you usually think of uh, others, perhaps, as unprofitable servants? What happens to unprofitable servants? Let's see, uh, Matthew 25 is a good place, and if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you strongly to uh, search the scriptures together as we look at this. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. As we examine what happens to unprofitable servants. A very familiar passage to most of us. A parable that Jesus was speaking about uh, the last days. And in Matthew 25 verse 30, he speaks of a man described as an unprofitable servant. He says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What happens to unprofitable servants? They are cast out. out. Of course, you know the parable, uh, the servants were given talents, uh, the other servants worked with their talents, they did their master's uh, bidding, they increased the talents, and this servant did not do what the master wished him to do. And uh, neglecting or shutting up the talent that God gave him, and hiding it in the earth, uh, caused him to be pronounced as an unprofitable servant, and he was cast out. So God pronounces non-workers as unprofitable servants. You know that word unprofitable uh, servant, or the word specifically unprofitable, appears only one other time in the Bible. It's only used twice. This is one of them. Let's go look at the other one. And the other one is found in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. The only other place where we read of unprofitable servants using the same word, Luke chapter 17. And in Luke 17, we'll look at verse 10 together and we'll see what Christ here says in Luke 17, 10. He says, So likewise ye, speaking to his disciples, when ye shall have done all those things, which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now isn't that an interesting verse? Now, I've been uh, in the church uh, many, many Sabbaths over the years. I do not ever recall hearing a message on this story. Why did Jesus instruct his disciples to call themselves unprofitable Servants. Don't you think that's interesting? I thought so when I looked at this verse. I said, why is it that Christ is telling his disciples when they do what they were supposed to do, all that is commanded of them, they are to say they are unprofitable servants. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Yes, no, perhaps. Does it seem like a contradiction? Yes. Yes, well, when it does seem like a contradiction, that means that there is a deeper lesson in the Bible that we need to uncover. We're going to do that tonight, quickly. 
Let's look at this parable and see what we can learn. Why is it that Christ says this to those who do his will? To call themselves unprofitable servants. Useless and good for nothing. Let's look at this parable, beginning in verse 7. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Let's examine it. Verse 7, Luke 17, 7 says, But which of you, having a servant, planning or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he is come from the field, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not, or I think not. This is the parable that Jesus is speaking, before which he says those interesting words that we're looking at. Now, interesting parable, we'll just quickly look at it, it's quite obvious. Uh, Christ, when he speaks to the disciples many times, he says, but which of you? And addressing the disciples like that, he's, of course, uh, speaking of an incident or a matter that they can all relate to. Which of you? And he wants to draw all their minds to think of this interesting example. And he says, does a master thank his servant for the things that he does? Or does he ask him to uh, sit down and eat before he finishes his work? And of course, the parable uh, represents... The servants would represent whom? Us, and the master would certainly represent Christ. Now, of course, we see here the work that is outlined for the servants. They do a work outside of plowing and uh, caring, and also they do a work inside of making ready and serving. And this is really illustrates the work of uh, Christ's servants outside, reaching out to others, and inside serving or providing food, that is food in the church, spiritual food, and especially in the church. Church, yes, what's the, where does church start? Home. We've been learning about it all weekend. In the home, that's where we provide the spiritual food. So there's a work for the servants of Christ to do outside and inside. And then Christ says after that, they can sit and eat. And the, the point that Jesus makes here in the parable, he says, does the master ever thank the servant for that? And then what does he say? He says, I think not. Now, of course, it's not expected at all in human circles uh, when a servant does all his work, with, uh, the duty that is done him, uh, and the disciples would have related to that for the master is to say, thank you so much for doing that. And, of course, that's an example that they could all relate to. And the point that Christ is making is this. He says, if this is not expected among humans with their servants, how much more with God? And then in light of that, he says in verse 10, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. You see, Christ here is uh, teaching a very important attribute. An attribute that needs to apply to those who do his will those who are doing his work. Because remember, Christ is here addressing those who will carry out all that is commanded. When they do all that, they are to have a specific view of themselves. You see, Christ knows that those who work for him, especially those who might do a, work, a great work for him, have a very big trap before their feet. And in this parable, he's giving them a warning. He's giving them a safety to avoid that. And that trap is simply this. We become... 
important in our own eyes when we do something great. We feel really important. We feel like we actually do God a favor. Now I'm speaking here about all of us because this naturally comes to us. It is so bad actually that some people don't do what is commanded and they still feel good about themselves. And they still feel important about themselves. Christ is here addressing those who do the work, who do all that is commanded, and he tells them, but be careful because there is a big trap. Self-importance can sit in, or pride of accomplishment. And you need to consider yourselves as unprofitable servants. That's what he said, isn't it? That's quite interesting. Christ was well aware of that to those who do his work. It's a great grace that is needed to be an abundant laborer for God, to do great and marvelous things, and still not think too highly of self, and still think of self in a humble and meek way. You see, Christ was well aware that doing work for him can have a temptation of feeling, you know what, I'm doing the most important work, I'm working for God, God needs me because I'm doing such an important work. And Christ is warning his disciples, now, this is important and I want to share with you that this is a danger that is present today, especially among people who do a great work for God. You have a disease that sets in that is pride. And it sets in in such a way that is uh, very subtle sometimes. And uh, this is what we want to examine a little bit. It takes great grace to stay humble and stay meek when we do all that is commanded of us. Uh, if we're not doing what is commanded, it's, uh, it's even more uh, tragedy. Some people feel that we feel so important when they've done not much, not much at all. For example, when we uh, have great accomplishments, that doesn't, doesn't only involve the things we do, it also involves the things we believe in. We believe a certain truth, for example, and we become very proud of what we believe, especially if we can share that truth really well, or if we can get up the front and speak really well, or if we pray really well, or if we can convince people of the truth and fire all our texts at them <laughs> with references. We feel really good. We feel like we're doing something great. We actually feel proud of what we're doing. Christ knew, knew that. He said to his servants, listen, when you do all that is commanded, remember, to say, we are unprofitable servants. Because we've only done that which is our duty to do. Is what the Bible tells us, you know, we have knowledge. What does knowledge do? Knowledge buffeth up. But knowledge is designed to save us as we come to a closer relationship with God. Without Christ, knowledge will buff us up. And we'll become proud of our accomplishments. We've been talking about that throughout this weekend. And uh, pride is one of these things that is characteristic of one of the churches in the book of Revelation. And that's the church that is called Laodicea. And who is Laodicea? Yes, we're not too sure who it is. Laodicea is? I believe. It's us, isn't it? It is. This is what we're going to look at. You see, pride... Someone said, pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick 
except the one who has it. <laughs> Isn't that true? You ever met, come across people who are really proud of what they accomplished, and they do great work for God. They might do fantastic work, but there is this sense of pride in what they have done. And uh, I have uh, come across situations like that, and we boast so easily. Sometimes we don't say it, but in our attitude, in our mentality, we have this spiritual pride that can develop, especially if we possess certain truths that others don't have or others don't know. And this is a temptation that we need to be mindful and aware of. We become proud of our work, our opinions, or our achievements. Some people are so proud of their opinion, they think nobody should question that. People who do the work of Christ. This is a danger for the Church of Christ. Notice how Paul gives us a warning. The great Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians, let's go there. Chapter 4. The great Apostle Paul gives a warning. A really beautiful verse that touches on this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 7 says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? Paul is here directing attention to the fact that we are all recipients of God's blessing. Whether that be in talent, whether that be in ability to work, or to achieve anything, it is actually a result of what God sends down to us. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it? Every good thing comes from above. Christ, foreseeing this danger that we can actually take to ourselves and start looking to self when we do His work, He instructs us to do that by saying we are unprofitable servants. Now, how does heaven estimate this situation? There's a con interesting uh, contrast here between the way we estimate ourselves according to Christ and the way heaven estimates those workers. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. I'll see quickly how Christ estimates those who do all that is commanded them. Matthew chapter 25. And we'll look at verse 21. Matthew 25, we're familiar with this, and verse 21. Yeah, we're going to use that in a minute. Matthew 25, 21 tells us about those servants that used the talents. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Isn't that interesting? The servant who did all that was commanded him is viewed by heaven as a good and faithful servant. But Christ told his disciples when they are to do all that is commanded them, they are to estimate themselves as unprofitable. So you see the difference here. Christ is instructing us that we need to be meek and humble in the work that we do. And this work is of great value and estimation in the eyes of heaven, in the eyes of God. Uh, this is really what uh, one man experienced, the man Job. Let's go to the book of Job and see the experience of Job in light of this. 
this estimation of heaven and our estimation. Job chapter 9. Job, Old Testament, before the Psalms, chapter 9. And this is a point that I believe, I know it definitely helped me, I believe helps us in our concept of what we are aiming for, what we are striving for, and how we are to feel towards that. Notice what Job says in chapter 9, verse 21. He says there, Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. How do you think Job would have been feeling then? Like an unprofitable servant, perhaps? He says, though I were perfect, I would not know it. I would actually despise my life. Do you know how heaven viewed Job? Remember how Job is described? A perfect and an upright man. Man that what? Fears God and is with evil or shuns evil. You see here the contrast. How a righteous man, a man who does all that is commanded him, will estimate himself in the light of heaven, and how heaven estimates him. If we are aiming for perfection, are we then to expect that we should feel perfect? You see, a lot of people have that uh, issue. They're aiming for perfection, and they're also aiming to feel perfect. And the thing that we're learning here from this parable is Christ says when you do all this work, you actually estimate yourselves as unprofitable servants. You see, what happens is when we draw close to Christ, something happens to our vision. We start seeing ourselves clearer and clearer. And we realize the deformity and depth of sin that is in our heart. See, our heart is by nature proud. Pride is not something I need to sit down and teach people. We naturally incline towards that. As we draw closer to Christ, something happens. And uh, we have a quote here that we'd like to look at. And this really is the true index of the spiritual life. We're told in the book Steps to Christ, to Christ, the wonderful book, it says, the closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you'll appear in your own eyes. For your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power, that the vivifying influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you. See, friends, Christ is instructing his servants, his disciples, it's you and me. As we do his work and draw closer to him, he's giving us the secret of not falling into that trap of pride, to keep looking to him. And as this is the evidence that we're drawn closer to Christ. How we behave, how we estimate ourselves. Do we view ourselves in a humble light, a meek light, or do we view ourselves as really important? Do we think that we're the best thing that happened to God because of the great things we do for him? You know, we might think that's an absurd thing to think, but there are people, Christ said, who will have that very temptation when they do a great work for him. And you can see it in the examples of people who do a great work and they spend uh, a portion of their time recounting the great work that they have done. And the thing that is driving that is there is a sense of importance. 
a sense of they are doing something great. Christ foresaw that. We're not to uh, neglect repeating what God has done, but remember, this we're dealing with a condition of the heart here that is natural to us. And we can fool ourselves. We can have a, a false sense of humility. We can have a false sense of meekness. And uh, this is a real trap for those who do the work. Notice what we're told here, another very interesting quote. It says here, the lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. Did you know that? It says, while speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted righteousness. This is the spirit of Jesus looking into our hearts and telling us how our hearts can deceive us. And it continues, it says, in one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. We must behold Christ. It is ignorance of him that makes men so uplifted in their own righteousness. When we contemplate his purity and excellence, we shall see our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are saved, ever saved, it will not be through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace. Now, some people can be so humble that they're proud of it. That's really what that's saying, isn't it? We can feel so humble, so good, and say, Lord, I'm so proud that I'm humble. I've actually, I've had actually the unfortunate experience of listening to someone actually boast about their humility. Uh, they got up in a meeting and they were expressing that they were very, very humble. And I thought that seems to me, at least, a contradiction of terms. There is a true sense of humility and there is a fake. And humility is not just expressed in the lips. It is a true realization of our hearts, a true realization of self in the light of drawing closer to Jesus. This is only possible to have that genuine experience only if we're drawing closer to Christ, as it says here. Otherwise, we can fool ourselves and have that false sense of humility, the false meekness. So be careful lest you be found in your own eyes as really, really good. That's a warning that Jesus gave us. Each and every one of us, the warning I have to take personally, and anyone who is at all interested in doing work for the Master. This parable specifically applies to those who do that which is commanded them. Trusting in doing all the right and good things. And we recount our good works. Will good works save us? We all know that, don't we? Will they save us? But will we be saved if we don't have good works? No, and this is an important thing we need to realize. That's what we're told in the Testimonies, Volume 4. Our good works alone will not save any of us, but we cannot be saved without good works. And the danger is that we can, when we do the good works, look to these works and convince ourselves that we're really humble. And that's a trap. We cannot be saved without good works. And after we have done all that we can do in the name and strength of Jesus, we are to say, we are unprofitable servants. What does that mean? We have a true estimation in that everything that we are is from Christ. Without him, we could have never accomplished that. And we truly have a genuine sense that we, in ourselves, 
are not of importance. Our importance comes from where? From Christ. And so who will we uplift? Christ. You see, there's a difference. There are people who uplift what they do, and there are people who uplift Christ. Paul gives us uh, an insight into what he did. And we'll continue. We are not to think that we have made great sacrifices and that we should receive great reward for our feeble service. <laughs> have you ever wondered how the angels view our great and good works? And we're so proud of our good works and the things we did, and we stop back and we pat ourselves on the back. And we do this subconsciously. The point is we don't do this really. We, we convince ourselves that we're not doing this. And this is a deception Christ is warning his disciples about. Self-righteousness and carnal security are the lot of those who deem themselves really good servants. Who trust in the ability that they can accomplish what the master wanted. When we estimate self in a high light, we are in great danger. We are really not looking any longer to Christ. We're looking to self. And we suffer from a proud spirit. This is why we're instructed to have a true, not a false, humility. It says, he who desires to rise to true greatness must walk humbly before God. Not with a forced humility or a put-on humility. Or going tonight and saying, well, we heard the message about humility, I'm going to be humble. It has to be a true one. And continue reading. But with a genuine sense of his own inefficiency and of God's greatness. Here's where it comes from. He is to strive earnestly to make the soul temple a place where God delights to dwell. Looking to Jesus would have that automatic effect on us. We will realize our own nothingness and the greatness of God. Otherwise, we will fool ourselves. Now, there's a very good test for this wonderful and sometimes elusive attribute, humility. Let's look at Psalm chapter 25, a beautiful verse. Psalm chapter 25, and we're getting close to the finish line. Psalm chapter 25, let's read verse 9. It says, the meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. This is an important test. The meek are teachable, according to the word. The meek and humble are teachable. Now, this is a very, very important attribute to have. And you will find invariably that those who are rather proud of their accomplishments are not generally very teachable. Uh, in the spirit of prophecy, we have one of the most important qualifications uh, for workers. And this is a statement that really uh, impressed me when I read it first. It's in Testimonies, Volume 7. It's also in the book, Ministry of Healing, page 144. Notice what it says. In choosing men and women for his service, God does not ask whether they possess learning or eloquence or worldly wealth. What does he ask? He asks, do they walk in such humility that I can teach them my way? Can I put my words into their lips? Will they represent me? Now, those of you who think that you have no eloquence, no talent, and nothing you can contribute to God's word, God doesn't ask that. He asks, are you walking in such humility that I can teach you? Are you teachable? Are you humble and teachable? Can you be trusted with his words in your lips? Will you represent him? This is the question that is asked. And uh, that gives me hope. 
because Christ is looking for those who are teachable. Now it's interesting, uh, I'll share this example with you quickly. When it says those who are teachable, how does God teach us? Does God send an angel from heaven to teach us? He can, but he doesn't. Sometimes he uses other people. That's interesting. One time I was uh, listening to an overseas speaker, and uh, I have nothing against overseas speakers, but it seems that overseas speakers generally are uh, more knowledgeable than the local ones. Generally, that's the trend that I sensed in meetings or in uh, camps or things that are happening, the question is usually asked, who's speaking, where is he from? Usually speakers come from overseas. Oh, yes, well, we must go attend. <laughs> or if the speaker is not uh, from so far a distance, if he's more local, oh, well, we'll see if we can make it. Am I the only one who hears comments like that? Or do you feel, is that familiar thinking? Yeah, why is that? Have you ever wondered why we think that way? Yeah, I'm not too sure uh, why. We just uh, think of something we're not too familiar with might have something we can learn from. Anyway, I was at the meeting and there was an overseas speaker. And uh, after the topic, he shared the topic and I went up to him and I had studied the topic and I was... Uh, there were some points that he had not mentioned and I thought I will help him next time he presents it. As, and I went up to him and told him, Brother, I've looked at this topic. It's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I have a few points that you didn't mention that... Uh, uh, if you'd like, I can send to you in an email that might enhance your presentation. I did it the nicest way possible. And uh, you know what happened? He wasn't interested. In the slightest. He actually seemed to me that he got upset that I was suggesting that perhaps there are some points that could really empower what he was saying. What was the problem? He was doing work for the master, but he had a very high opinion of himself. This is a, a disease, this is a plague that can affect those who do work for the master. They have a high opinion. Their opinion uh, shouldn't be questioned or added to. And they are actually unteachable. They cannot be taught. Now, there is this chance that perhaps God was trying to show the brother something. Perhaps through a feeble instrument such as myself. And perhaps one day, uh, that has happened, I'll be in a similar situation where after a study or a talk, somebody will come up to me and say, brother, perhaps, and that would be a test for me, wouldn't it? How will I take it? That's a test for us. Being teachable is a good test. Here's another wonderful statement. It says, all for that devotion and humility of heart that will lead God's people to do those things that Christ has commanded and still in all humility and truth say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only that which was our duty to do. But many Many are swelling with pride and importance, who in God's estimation are lukewarm. Self-gratification is revealed because of a few things accomplished. This is uh, not even doing all that is commanded. A few things accomplished, and we feel really important and swell with pride. And it can be really deceptive because we can really fool ourselves into thinking that we're meek, we're really humble. This is a good test, teachability. These parables, Christ was teaching lessons of humility, lessons of true estimation of self in the service of God, lest we be uh, ensnared. If we do not learn to do that, if we do not learn to humble ourselves, it can be a very, very uh, risky business. You see, a lot of people, 
do not realize that God will intervene in order to save us. But sometimes it will come at a, at a cost. It can be quite dangerous. Notice how dangerous it can be. It says, I saw that many prayed for God to humble them, but if God should answer their prayers, it will be by terrible things in righteousness. It was their duty to humble themselves. Now, how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? Beholding Christ. That's how we do it. It's our duty to look to Jesus, truly. Not with a forced humility, not because, oh, we have to do this. But as we view the beauty of Christ, as we draw closer to Him, it will naturally affect our viewers of self. Have you experienced that in your spiritual walk as you draw closer to Christ? And you actually realize depths of evil in your heart that you had not imagined were there? I know I have. And I've had actually to repent of sins in a deeper way as I've learned how more evil they were as I walked further. And sometimes I've uh, been unfaithful and backslid a little and lost sight. But as we draw closer to Jesus, it is our duty, we're told, to humble ourselves. I saw that if self-exaltation was suffered to come in, here's the danger, it would surely lead souls astray and if not overcome would prove their ruin. When one begins to get lifted up in his own eyes and thinks he can do something, the Spirit of God is withdrawn and he goes on in his own strength until he is overthrown. That's dangerous not to look to Christ, especially at this late hour. And many times the humiliation of defeat is the means that God uses to wake us up to our true condition of trusting in ourselves, trusting in what we do. This is why we're told that uh, oh, we're not there yet. We're told that uh, we are to humble ourselves, to confess our sins, and to realize that the message to this church, to the last church, to the Laodicean church, actually applies to those who don't think it applies to them. That's what we're told. The message to the Laodicean church applies to those who think it applies to others. That means that message is just for them. When we look at... Uh, this idea of being meek and humble in the service of God, a true humility, a sense of God's greatness and our nothingness. And we talk about faith and righteousness by faith, because really this is the message that we're commissioned to give. It's the message of righteousness by faith, faith in what Christ has done. What is the link between what we're talking about and righteousness by faith? If we go back to the parable, we'll find that Christ was actually answering a question about a topic. Let's go back to Luke chapter 17 and see what Christ was saying. And this parable that Christ was giving in answer to the question is actually an instruction in faith. Notice verse 5. It says, And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. So this is the question that Jesus is answering. And he answers this question of increase our faith by telling them about if they have faith as a mustard seed. And then he tells them about this parable that we examine tonight. So what does this have to do with that? Christ is teaching that the possession of more faith or an increase in faith actually will come as a result of having a humble estimation of self and a true estimation of Christ. In other words, you're placing your dependence on Christ, and isn't that faith? Trusting in 
Christ in Jesus. Christ is illustrating this in a parable. And uh, when we become self-important in our own eyes, we actually digress in faith. This is what the work of justification by faith really is. Notice how Christ, the uh, Spirit of Jesus, comments on that. It says, what is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which is not in his power to do for himself. So justification by faith has to do with laying the glory of man where? In the dust. You see the connection here, why Christ was telling them, listen, when you do all these things, say you are unprofitable servants. We have a danger of becoming important. The word of faith, justification by faith, or righteousness by faith, is to actually give us a true estimation of ourself and God. It continues, when men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When they begin to praise and exalt God all the day long, then by beholding they are becoming changed into the same image. What is regeneration? It is revealing to man what in his own real nature, that in himself he is worthless. That's interesting because this weekend we've been talking about these things, haven't we? In ourselves we are really worthless. Where does our worth come from? From, from Christ. From the Father, of course, through Christ. But many times we begin to think that we actually are doing something good. We must be important. This is what the work of justification by faith is. These lessons you have never learned. Oh, that you could realize the value of the human soul. And that value of the human soul, which in and of itself is worthless, the value is according to how much God valued it. And that value was the life of God's own son. You see, a, real, a true realization that will give us true concepts of estimating ourselves. This is the work of righteousness by faith. That's what Christ was teaching in that parable. We have wonderful examples of that in the Bible. Great men. We can think of a few. Remember, Moses was one of them. He was described as the meekest, wasn't he? The great man Moses. Now, what was the test we said for meekness? What was the verse we read in Psalm? The meek will he? Teach, remember, God says, do I walk humbly so that I can teach them. Remember, the great Moses, the man, the man who the Bible says there was no prophet like him, whose name stands for the law of God. What an honor. Imagine if I was you. Your name stands for God's law and God's uh, character. Moses, that's what is associated with in the Hebrew mind. And this great man, Moses, remember, when he was visited by his father-in-law, and as he watched him in uh, judgment with the people, Remember what his father-in-law said to him? What you're doing is not good. You should actually appoint elders and to ease the work. What did Moses do? He listened, didn't he? Did he pass the test? Why? He was really meek. He really had a true estimation of himself in the light of Christ. He was beholding God so much to actually realize how great God is and that in and of himself he is worthless. Apollos, the great, in the New Testament. You know, Apollos is described as a man who was uh, eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, that he confounded the Jews. Remember, he was meek. How do we know that? Two tent makers approached him, and the Bible says they took him to them, and they explained to him the way of God more perfectly. 
Did he sit and listen? Yes, and it empowered his ministry even more. He was a great man who was walking with God. He had a true, a true estimation of himself. He was teachable. Paul, the apostle, the great Paul. We know about the apostle Paul more than any other apostle, don't we? And all the great and wonderful things that he did. We have most of our New Testament thanks to Paul. How did he regard himself? He said what? I'm the least of the apostles. Do you think he just said that? No, he was viewing Christ. This is what Christ wants for us. Those who are involved in his work. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinner and the least of all the saints. And in Corinthians 9, he says that, lest by any means, when he, had, when he has preached to others, he should become a castaway. He was worried about being uplifted in his work. He said, I keep under my body. Our final quote in the Southern Watchman, a beautiful statement. It says, we are to strive to enter in at the straight gate, but this gate does not swing loosely on its hinges. Interesting description. It will not admit doubtful characters. We must now strive for eternal life with an intensity that is proportionate to the value of the prize before us. It is not money or lands or position, but the possession of a Christ-like character that will open to us the gates of paradise. It is not dignity, it is not intellectual attainments that will win for us the crown of immortality. Only the meek and lowly ones who have made God their efficiency will receive this gift. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful statement? We can only possess a Christ-like character by beholding Christ. And this is the appeal I want to make to all of us, me inclusive, is to truly behold Christ and to realize what Christ meant when he said in the parable, when you have done all these things, say, we are unprofitable servants. The great David in First Chronicles, last text, that was the last quote, and our last text. First Chronicles 29. The great King David, whose name again is closely associated with the Messiah forever, throughout all eternity. His name is forever linked with the Messiah and Christ. Beautiful verse. When he was dying and offering up his last prayer, he had a true realization. First Chronicles 29 and verse 14. Notice what he says here in his prayer. He says, but who am I? Verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Our greatest work and service to God, really, we are giving back to God what belongs to him. That's why Christ said, remember, when you do all these things, remember not to think you're too important. So, if we were to ask the question again, how many people would uh, say that they were unprofitable servants? I don't ask you to show your hands. But to truly say it, to truly realize it, we must behold Christ. We must do his work, all that he commands, and still be humble. Let's not try and be humble when we've done nothing at all and think that we're great. But when we do all that is commanded, let us be humble. And this ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, the Bible tells us, in the sight of God is of great price. 
heaven places a high estimate on such ones. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.